Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. I'm Professor John Marsden and I work at the National Addiction Centre based at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience here at King's College London. I'm a clinical research psychologist and cognitive behavioural psychotherapist and I've got a long-standing interest in developing and evaluating quite novel psychological and often medication therapies for the treatment of addictive disorders. I also study healthcare systems, but today we're going to be looking at addiction and its treatment. The structure of the lecture today is really quite challenging for me. I'm going to really try and address the following. What is addiction and what are the symptoms? How does addiction develop and how is it maintained? How does it continue, sometimes over a long period and often getting worse over time as well? And importantly, how can we treat it? Now, let me just put my hand up straight away. There are many types of addiction and there are many ways of addressing this lecture topic today. And I decided to use the example of cocaine addiction. It's actually a very good example for the purpose we have today. But my overarching goal is to give you a flavour of this whole topic. If I've succeeded at the end, I've piqued your interest in finding out more about this topic. It's been my career focus and I commend it to you as a really interesting, very challenging and very important aspect of our behavioural sciences. I typed out this definition of addiction. Uh, There are many and it seemed to me that this one here kind of captures what we're talking about. It's, I've already said it, it's a complex, it's a biobehavioral disorder. So don't ever think I'm not someone that is centering my focus on brain function, but today you're going to get a much more psychological account. So it's a biobehavioral disorder in which exposure to drugs, learning, including motivation, thought and memory, come together and sustain a harmful and usually an unwanted habit. And that seems to me to to capture the nature of addiction, although many people have their own definition. We have a popular conception of addiction, don't we? We often use it to describe how how strongly we're craving a particular type of food. I took a photograph of this um, billboard advert a couple of months ago, and uh, it it caught my attention, really. You can see how the um, photograph of a McNugget uh, is um, distinguished in terms of the ketchup on the right side, which denotes the amount of time it would take um, proportionately to eat it. And then the rest of the nugget is indicated the time spent thinking about it quite humorous, quite clever really in a way, Um, but it really captures for me the concept of preoccupation. Sometimes that's a fleeting, 
um, thought that pops into a person's mind about an addictive target. But often it's sustained and quite distressing. The person is really unable to push that thought away from their mind. And we're going to be really looking at that in the lecture today. So I said we'd focus on cocaine, and let me just give you a little background information about this very powerful drug. Cocaine um, is a natural or organic drug in that it's synthesized from a fairly unremarkable shrub, and this shrub grows in the Andean highlands of South America. And here's a, a photograph on the right and a, a kind of um, a still from a text on the left. What you get at the end of a production line process illicitly is cocaine hydrochloride. There's a photograph of it here. You can see it's a, a, a white, sometimes crystalline powder, sometimes matte off-white powder. Varies quite widely as one might imagine given its illicit nature. It's linked globally to a substantial burden of disease, cocaine, overall. I won't get into that today, but there are problems with the cardiovascular system, uh, problems with um, the airways for people that uh, use it in a particular way, we'll come on to in a moment, and a whole unfortunate host of individual, social, occupational and legal problems. Now, crucially, there are several forms of the drug. You've seen the hydrochloride powder, but there's also another type. And actually, this type is much more concerning for us clinically in that the solid alkaloid of cocaine, uh, known as crack or rocks, uh, is really the type that we see in clinical practice. And it's quite different for a number of reasons. It's usually inhaled as a vapor after heating it rather than sniffing powder into the nasal cavity. You can see here the prevalence. Over 18 million people use cocaine uh, each year and around 7 million people world, worldwide have cocaine use disorder, which I'll be defining in a moment. But let's just have a little look at the difference between cocaine powder and crack cocaine. So this slide just distinguishes the two forms. So the picture on the left you'll recognize as cocaine powder. And on the right, this is a, a more unusual photograph, isn't it? It looks like almost like a slightly waxy, almost candle wax type uh, um, form. And that's crack. It varies. It sometimes can be very hard. It's sometimes much, much softer. But they're very, very different forms of exactly the same drug. This is important as we go down into the sort of lower portion of the slide. Let me just focus on acute onset for a moment. You can see that, first of all, crack is sniffed into the nose um, and begins to work in about five minutes. Now, it could be dissolved in water and injected into the uh, venous um, system of the body, and that would take a very rapid, almost instantaneous route into brain HQ. But commonly it's uh, sniffed. You can see underneath that that it, it lasts, in terms of its stimulating effects, it activates, makes the person experience euphoria, they become talkative, active, sometimes gallerous, gallerous. sometimes they might experience unwanted behaviours, as we'll see later. And that effect lasts for about 30 minutes, shorter for injection, and there's usually quite a powerful motivation to, to redose. 
But take a look at the other side of the slide. It's very different for crack cocaine. Look at that. When you inhale it, it's instantaneous. It really, a fraction of a second, it reaches and crosses the, the um, blood-brain barrier. And its effects are much uh, more intense, but much more short-acting, certainly less than 10 minutes. And what you find with crack cocaine is the motivation then for a, for a cycle of repeated consumption over sometimes many, many hours indeed. I mentioned cocaine use disorder. So this is how clinicians using the American um, Psychiatric Association's approach for uh, diagnosing um, psychiatric disorders. So cocaine use disorder under DSM-5. This is how we define it. We, we diagnose it by asking patients about their experience of these 11 symptoms. We really focus on the last year and we focus on the occurrence, the co-occurrence of these symptoms in one particular period of time. It might be, say, a month or so. And we're looking at whether the person endorses the following symptoms, that they feel they've taken the drug in larger amounts or for longer than they wanted to. They wanted to cut down, but couldn't quite do that. They spent a lot of time getting it and using it. They had a, This is crucial, isn't it? Number four, they had a a strong desire to use it. We, we use the word craving for that. The idea of an urge, a strong desire, a want for a particular thing. Here, cocaine. And then the rest of the symptoms, I won't read them out now, um, really capture problems that are caused by cocaine. Continuing to use in spite of problems um, and some physiological um, correlates at the end in terms of increased tolerance, so needing to use more to get the same effect, and then experiencing cocaine withdrawal symptoms, which we won't really be covering today, but are unpleasant, usually resolving in a week or so. I want to really focus our attention now, pretty much for the rest of the presentation, on how cocaine use disorder is created, how it develops, how it incubates, and it doesn't come out of anywhere, you know, it comes really out of a process, sometimes prolonged, of exposure. So taking the drug repeatedly over time, but in the context of lots of different other things that are happening at the same time. So over time, previously unconditioned places, sounds, people, times of day, social events, physical sensations, moods, objects, and smells, and probably several others that I've forgotten to put in here, become associated with the experience of the drug, so that when they are encountered, there is a triggering and elaborated set of thoughts about cocaine. Really, really classical instrumental conditioning. And these now conditioned stimuli, unfortunately, have quite a powerful sort of battery on board. They don't disappear over time. So if the person quits, they still have the power of triggering thoughts and craving, of course, about cocaine for quite some time. And you can see how um, in, in clinical practice, we're really focused on helping people kind of process and, and manage and cope with these cues.
Here's an example of a ATM machine. I photographed this on my phone, uh, clo close to the clinic. And for us, it's a source of money, isn't it? But for someone who's got cocaine addiction, it's a trigger for thoughts that relate to wanting the drug, what we might call approach thoughts. So if a person with cocaine disorder turns the street corner and sees an ATM in front of them, so this is a real object, so they're using their visual senses to see it and process it, they might have a number of elicited thoughts and feelings that relate to that encounter. Now they might not, but in this example here are some real um, reactions that patients have told me. So the first thought is, I need cocaine. And they might have adrenergic gut or butterfly feelings about that. That thought may almost domino if that has a meaning for you. They may move to permission-giving thoughts. They may say to themselves in their heads, oh, well, I've got some money, or I can get money, interestingly, and a little would be okay. I've been really good this week. So they give, them almost, they give themselves almost permission. Then there might be some anxious thoughts. I just can't resist this. I'm too weak. And they might do a number of strategies that we know from many aspects of psychological disorders are usually ineffective, such as the attempt to thought block. Uh, sometimes distraction can work, but thought blocking generally, where you're trying to say, no, 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 go away, generally results in the thought staying around and becoming harder to resist. I want to take a, just a tiny detour for a second and just bring in, as I've been hinting perhaps, the concept of mental imagery. And mental imagery could, could involve an entire lecture and is absolutely central to several um, psychological disorders, including PTSD, health anxiety, and, and many more. And it's a key experience in addiction, especially cocaine use disorder. So what is a mental image? Well, it's a representation of the world with sensory qualities. Um, it can be of something remembered, but isn't this interesting? It can be of something never experienced. I might imagine myself, God help the audience, <laughs> playing guitar on the stage in the Albert Hall what a frightening thought that is. I could, I could bring it to mind and literally imagine it happening. Possibly one or two people clapping, but maybe a look of horror on the majority. Anyway, back to the lecture. So it can be of any sensory modality, including sounds and smells, but, but commonly visual. It's usually very vivid and detailed. And this is the key point, this mental image is accompanied by strong emotion, as we'll see in a moment. And mental images in cocaine use disorder in particular are often highly intrusive, repetitive, and involve the recall of consolidated memories about using. So, this imaginal process comes together and then elaborates to form the experience of craving, as this slide shows. So if we take the top sort of blue curve or cycle, you can see how a process of this intrusive image created by all sorts of possibilities that we've been looking at, 
It might come out of the blue, but it might be triggered directly by encountering a cue. And it causes the occurrence of a basic emotional response, surprise, um, sometimes excitement, fear, but not really any words on that, just gut instinct. And there can be autonomic reactions that you could measure in the body, pupillary dilation, uh, skin conductivity, and so forth. Crucially, the person's focus of attention is now directed away from anything else in the world to that image. It then elaborates, it expands. Other memories and beliefs are elicited. The person's attention becomes much more controlled and focused. And here there's complex emotion now. It might be, um, it might be guilt. It might be, might be that sort of feeling of shame that they've been thinking about this, or it might be the complex permission-giving emotions I mentioned a minute ago. And then we have craving, finally, where there's a vicious circle, perhaps, where the person begins to feel the idea of a want. It takes the form of a plan. Okay, well, how can I get this target that I now want? How, how do I get, how do I obtain cocaine? You can't buy it in a shop. So there's almost procedural memory that comes in to actually tackle the challenge of finding it. Of course, for many people who we work with clinically, obtaining this drug is unfortunately not too difficult. What we have, I think, is a complex process in which there are three interlocking, overlapping processes. And I want to spend just a couple of minutes just taking you through these in a way, vicious circles, they can sometimes be virtuous circles in that they both, on the one hand, account for the development of an addictive problem, but also they show and shine a light towards how the problem can be reduced, ameliorated, and there can be recovery. So let me just go through this. At the top, we've got this idea of implicit autonomous. So this is the, the sort of cognitive system, first of all. It's implicit because it, it works incredibly fast, unconsciously, outside of um, awareness. And it is a product of the development of habit. You can see at the top, at the sort of 12 o'clock position, we're talking about associative memory representations. Bring to mind that, that graphical image of all those, all those different cues. So these are created. If we go clockwise to the 3 p.m. position, those cues create what I call fast thoughts. They come out almost without um, awareness. They come very quickly in response to these representations. And they take the form of images of usually the future, but there can be images of the past as well that are drug-related. Conditional beliefs are elicited. There's a sort of appraisal of what that experience is like now. So we've now, we're beginning quickly to bring in working memory, as of course we must. Focus moves from... Um, the environment, inward to the body at 6 p.m., and then at 9 p.m., moving around clockwise, we've got the basic responses that I was eliciting. So that's the fast process that really drives the maintenance of addiction. But there's also an explicit and reflective process. So this is really where we're bringing in our powers of working memory and appraisal. Unlike the implicit autonomous process, this one has got a very small capacity our working memory capacity is remarkably limited. We, 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 we run out of processing almost. We, we get tired, we, our minds get distracted, etc. 
But there is a process here that also drives the maintenance of addiction. So you can see at the 12 o'clock position, I'm talking about declarative memory. So this is our sense of self, our autobiographical repository, really, of things that have happened to us, our knowledge of ourselves, facts and events, where we, we make sense of what's happened to us in the past. In a way, you want, one might think of that as memory of good experiences of taking drugs. We remind ourselves why it's been a good thing to do. Then if we move around to the, the uh, 3pm position going clockwise, we've got lots of interpretations and appraisals. Um, I mentioned permission giving. There's instrumental beliefs. If I take cocaine, then I will be less stressed. Things like that, of which there are many, many, many examples. We've got controlled attention. I mentioned that we're working now um, towards problem solving, actually obtaining, getting and using. And then, even though I mentioned that the autonomic processes are probably unconscious, there are other ones that you can continue to measure that might include changes in breathing, um, but also measures of um, skin conductance, and, and then complex emotion too, in terms of desire and ambivalence. So we've got two interlocking processes. They're quite complicated, but I, I hope they're making sense. And then we've got the motivational behavioral loop. And we're really now in the zone of whether the person's going to take the drug or not. So at the 12 o'clock position, we've got really complex appraisals um, that relate to things that are permission-based or forbidden. The person's, in a way, either not really struggling to desist at all. Just, okay, I'm going to use. I've got money in my pocket. Let's do it. Or there's a real tussle, a struggle, backwards and forwards almost, you can imagine, in which the person is wanting but then almost answering the thought by telling themselves that they, they've already made a plan to not do this. Why, you know, and there's a sense of, of debate almost, in, uh, cognitively. Then at 3pm we've got the formal expression of craving. So you see I'm bringing it in quite late in the day. You could measure it as a strength of urge. Uh, there might be also justifications and there might be some attempts to block. Right now at the 6pm we've got either using or not using. But if the person begins to take the drug, then it's an entire cascade of neurochemical and circuitry changes in the brain, which we know a lot about these days, that really mediate continued use. And then at 9pm I've, I've just summarised this neuro biobehavioral response, a whole cascade of changes uh, centrally and peripherally in the nervous system. There can be unwanted behavior, stereotypes, for example, are very common in cocaine, where a person, for example, during drug use, say they're at home in their apartment, might pace around, going to the window to check the street, going back to sit down, and then maddeningly for them to get up and do it again. So lots of repetitive behaviours that are usually unwanted and, and, and are very, very hard to control. So these are the sorts of processes that we have to work with. And you could, there's no doubt it's a complex picture. Here we've got this kind of overarching map, really, of these processes come together. Can you see them all now writ large? We've got the kind of cues at the top. We've got 
the way these act as triggers to both the implicit autonomous and the reflective explicit processes. And you can see how the left side is a process of habit strengthening, but the right side is a process of extinction where the habit begins to weaken if we can bring in more and more dominance of the explicit reflective mind. So the person begins to, in a way, think themselves through the problem. They delay the autonomous reaction loop, slow the behavior down so they become much more reflective. Well, I feel tired telling you about that. I'm sure that was hard to listen to, but let's just move on and see if we can make this much more clinically meaningful. So here's an example. I've changed some names here, but this is a real example. We're gonna look at Laura. And Laura was doing very well indeed. She'd quit for a while and she was spending a lot of time walking around the local area here. And she encountered this experience. So if, if you just stay with me on the left side of this diagram, she's walking down, she turns the street corner and there's a trigger. This is a condition trigger. It cues a fast process that we've been talking about and it gets her into a right pickle, as we might say. So what happens? Well, she turns the corner and, she, and if, we, if you go over to the right side, following that big arrow with me, she sees someone wearing a football shirt. She's never seen the person before who's wearing it, but the football shirt, the color and the collar, reminds her of someone called Ace, who she spends time with at Sam's flat preparing and smoking cocaine. This is actually a photograph she took of Sam's flat as part of therapy. And you can see there's a sort of table or so with lots of different items, not particularly clear on it, but they are drug paraphernalia. She has controlled attention. She focuses on another image in her mind, the memory of a syringe on the table. So this is someone that was actually injecting cocaine and she also saw, saw in her mind's eye a crack pipe. And this is a, a homemade crack pipe. You can see down there a small plastic bottle with a um, pipe attachment that's been made. Those images came together. She was flooded with intrusive thinking. And she turned the corner, another corner, and spent the next two days taking cocaine. From that trigger of a football shirt. So we spent a lot of time in therapy working through that and she was astonished to be able to, in a way, look back on that very harmful, protracted and unwanted lapse to the cause of it cognitively. So let's move on to treatment. And in a way, this could be a fairly sort of sober end to my talk. First of all, results of medication trials um, have been really disappointing. We don't have any licensed medication to treat cocaine use disorder in spite of a pretty formidable investment, uh, especially by the National Institutes of Health in the US, to study a variety of potential compounds, some with promise in small trials, but none emerging as now being FDA licensed, and none for us to use clinically. Perhaps as you might imagine from my talk so far, cognitive behavioral therapies should be among the most promising psychosocial interventions, and indeed they are among the most extensively studied. Meta-analysis, so this is where individual studies are in a sense combined together to form 
a conclusion across a particular area of science. So here, 53 individual trials of CBT for CUD, uh, sometimes with other substance use disorders like alcohol use disorder and cannabis use disorder. Anyway, these estimated that CBT achieves only a small overall treatment effect. And we've got a mean difference in cocaine use days of a standard deviation of 0.15. A statistically significant confidence interval for that estimate, but nevertheless pretty small and not particularly powerful um, in terms of clinical um, recommendation. Nevertheless, we've been very encouraged to pursue this treatment area using a cognitive therapeutic approach. And I'm going to spend the last few minutes of my talk today by hopefully encouraging you that we can treat this disorder and giving you an idea of how we've been doing so locally here at King's. If you're interested, the protocol for what I'm going to tell you about uh, in terms of this novel treatment is available at this trials journal. And we have been developing a therapy that we call memory-focused cognitive therapy for cocaine use disorder. I'm going to tell you a bit about it now. First of all, it's based on trying to get a really detailed and personal understanding of the person and the context in which they live and the triggers that they themselves have to live with that cue thoughts, emotions and cocaine use behavior. So these are just four photographs, um, actually from different patients, of places locally that remind the person of taking cocaine. So they're completely neutral for us, aren't they? But they're imbued very powerfully for the person that took them. So upper left is a sort of alleyway uh, in the local market. And you can imagine that might be a location where um, the person might meet a drug seller and buy cocaine. Uh, top right, yep, there it is. We've got the ATM machine. Bottom left, a, a sort of street in a corner, and then bottom right, um, a location in which um, it could be Sam's flat, couldn't it? A location in which co people meet to uh, take cocaine. So powerful triggers. So what? Hold on. You're thinking, okay, so you know a bit about this. What do you do with it? Well, we take it one step further. We ask our patients to bring in paraphernalia. So the, this is a photograph of some objects that people have brought into the clinic um, that they have used for consumption of cocaine. Um, the, what looks like a sort of wooden, it almost looks like a pencil, but it's actually a scraper. And it's used to recover small amounts of residue of cocaine from a, a glass pipe for example. And then we've got down at the bottom right, we've got a, it's a small miniature of uh, actually brandy and um, a hole is uh, uh, bored into the bottom of the pipe. You can sort of see it there, I think. And then uh, uh, that is used um, to, um, as a makeshift pipe. And there are other bits of paraphernalia there you can see. They don't mean anything to us, but they powerfully trigger physiological and psychological reactions in people. So we ask people to bring those that stuff into our clinic. And you're thinking, okay, well, that doesn't sound very a very nice experience. We made it even more powerful. So in a, it, I, I do forgive me, I'm aware this looks pretty rudimentary, but on the left is a cardboard box. And in that, for each patient, 
very personalized. We printed off and placed a selection of photographs of the locations we've been talking about. We asked the person to tell us about a craving experience and we, we audio recorded that and we also printed it off on, on a small A5 card and put that in the box. And then we put a selection of objects, um, used um, drug, we didn't put, don't be confused that we put any actual cocaine in the box, we just put a used container in. Um, sometimes we did put some money in if that was a very strong, powerful trigger. We also played an audio track during the time the patient would be asked to open the box and take out the objects and let their mind flow. We played an audio track of where they said they often were and what they could hear. It might be street noise, uh, it might be the, the, the sort of background of the TV program or music. And we really provoked craving. You can see, I hope, that it might be actually quite difficult to get a patient to activate their craving experience. They might be able to talk about it, and indeed they did at length before the, this exposure session, but we really wanted to provoke it. We wanted to elaborate it. If you can bring to mind the um, graphics I've been showing earlier. So we, in a way, we wanted the session to be cognitively hot. So the person was able to really experience all of those emotions and feelings. And then, of course, we wanted to help them process and reduce feelings of craving. So that was, of course, the therapeutic point of all of this. And we asked people, I mentioned a moment ago, to tell us about some craving. And I just wanted to give you an example. And it's a good example, I think, because it highlights very powerfully mental imagery. So this was a patient who was telling me about seeing a crack cocaine pipe, which she had behind the door in a cupboard on the wall in her kitchen. She said, I see it and I get butterflies in my stomach. I close the door, my heart starts beating faster, I can feel my heart racing. I start pacing about, I put the kettle on to make a coffee, and I'm pacing up and down while the kettle is boiling, and I sit down with my coffee and a cigarette. I can see it through the closed door in my head, and I'm thinking for expletive sake, just go, just leave me. So that's very powerful, I hope you would agree. You can see how encountering the object causes a variety of effects. There's autonomic there, aren't there, and cardiorespiratory. But then with the cupboard door closed, she has, an, she has an image of the crack pipe, and there's an absolutely, even though she doesn't articulate it directly, she goes on to really describe a very powerful sense of craving. So what we spent a lot of time activating and then using a variety of techniques to help our patients reduce that craving experience. We used imagery techniques, we used what we call cognitive restructuring. We tried to help the person answer thoughts so that they could reassure themselves. We did use a bit of distraction and we used a variety of techniques that came together in a small trial with a very encouraging effect for cocaine abstinence in favor of the intervention. I don't have time to get into exactly the methods with you today, but if you're interested, then 
the findings of the study uh, were published um, in 2018 in this journal here, which you can find, and it will set out exactly some of our procedures and in much more detail the um, methods we've used. So I hope that was an interesting, um, fairly superficial uh, discussion of, of addiction today, focusing on cocaine. Um, I'd like very much to acknowledge funding from the National Institute for Health Research uh, at the BRC, uh, at King's Health Partners, and my co-authors. I'm going to wish you every success in your studies. I, I hope I've been able to encourage you to be interested in the addictive behaviours and, of course, to look uh, into more about cocaine use disorder and of the many other addictive disorders there are. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.